Hello. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Um, yeah, so I'm Dilo. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Twice lately. That's why I just learned. I just learned that the Twice, that's like the K-pop K- K- girl group, and I found out all their fans are called Once. It doesn't make sense. It's like a singular. Anyway, it's just so bizarre. Anyway, okay. So yeah, I'm Dilo. Um, and yeah, thanks, thanks, Dan, for the kind introduction. Um, today, I'm gonna we're gonna try something a little different. Um, I'm gonna try something a little different today because uh, I'm the sermon is kind of going to be a little meta. It's going to be a sermon about sermons, <laughs> about how we give sermons a little bit. Okay. That's kind of a little bit. Um, so yeah, like me and Dan uh, live with one another. Um, and actually one of the, the people that taught us how to preach, how to give sermons uh, was former pastor Fred Mock. And what I'm going to do today is kind of let you in a little bit on kind of the secret sauce of kind of how we give sermons. And also I'm going to break one of the biggest rules of the Fred Mockian way of <laughs> giving sermons, all right? Um, so, Dan, what is the f- main thing? What is the first thing when it comes to giving a sermon? When Fred asks you, like, oh, okay, I'm giving a sermon. Can you help me? He'll ask you, what is, your main what is your main point? You have one main point. Everything is built around that main point or always is going to try to point that main point, Okay. But today we're not going to do that, okay? Because like, just kind of like when you give, um, how many of you guys have to write essays in school and stuff? You guys are, a lot of you guys are youth and you guys have to write essays, right? In the very beginning, you have to give a introduction and a, in your introduction, there is a thesis, right? A thesis and you state your main point right in the beginning and then everything else kind of points to that main point, even the conclusion. The conclusion is a rehashing of, anyway, right? This is, you're right? Yeah? Yeah? Yes? No? Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Tammy. Um, but yeah, but I'm not going to do that today because what I'm going to kind of share about is kind of how do we get that main point? How do we figure that out, right? And a big portion of that main point is going to come from the Bible, right? And how we read it and how we interpret it, how we understand it. And I think that's probably actually the big, the biggest part of when it comes to preaching and probably the hardest part, right? A lot of times it's like, how do I take this passage, interpret it? What is God saying to me? And then how do I, you know, send that main point out to, to you guys, right? So before we do that, I'm going to um, talk a little bit about interpretation. How do we interpret the Bible? How do we interpret things in general, right? Um, so I have, we're going to try this whiteboard thinking my thing because <laughs> it's easier to draw I'm thinking um, so as Christians we believe that God communicates to us he speaks to us right and when I think about how does God speak to us how uh, what are some of the ways that God speaks to us I think of mainly three ways right I think of he speaks to us through prayer right he speaks to us through, through our own our own minds whether that's whether that's dreams whether that's through prayer, whether it's through meditation, he speaks through us in that manner, right? Another way he speaks through us is through the church, through f- friends, through mentors, through pastors, through um, you know other people helping to speak to us, to, to, to give us God's word, um, hopefully speaking through, through me. Um, and then the third way is what? Through the Bible, right? Through God's word, okay? 
And I don't know about you guys, I have a very, uh, what's the word? I'm not curious, what's the word? Skeptical mind, generally speaking. So when I think, when I think about those three different ways that God speaks to us, I think about the first way. And, and maybe this is just a fault of mine and not everyone's like this, but whenever I think that God is saying something to me, my immediate skeptical mind will be like, well, how do I know that that's God? Or if that's just my own self saying something to me that I want to hear, right? Or maybe it's saying something that I, that I think I should be hearing, but I don't want to hear it. But I'm like, you know, like my whatever inner conscious is telling me something, right? Like you should do the dishes because <laughs> that'd be nice. Right? And like, is that God taking me or is that just like me thinking that like I should be a responsible person and an adult? And you know, uh, okay. Uh, so, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of skeptical. I'm like, uh, is that really God? So, and then when it comes to other people, when it comes to the church, when it comes to pastors, when it comes to friends, when it comes to mentors, um, certainly God could definitely be speaking to them. But once again, my skeptical mind will kind of go towards, um, well, how do I know that's not their own personal thoughts and their own personal monologue and their own personal like ideas of what they think God's saying to me when, I don't know, you know, is that this kind of, yes, kind of jive with that. Is, do people use the word jive anymore? Um, okay. And so the third way through the Bible, certainly there's some levels of subjectivity to about at least the words are the words are the words are the words. Okay. And you can go, you know, go down some YouTube rabbit hole to figure out like the truthfulness of how, if the words are really the words, but you know, if you do enough research, you'll find out that those were the original words of the Bible. They're unchanging. They are what they are, right? And so there is a level of objectivity, solidity, solidness of what the Bible is saying to me. And so for me, at least, I, I put a lot of faith and a lot of trust in, in, in what, what God is saying through the Bible to me. But there, there's kind of a difficulty, right? Because... Um, you have lots of different passages and you have lots of, it's not exactly the easiest to understand it, right? It's not exactly the easiest to interpret it. We have a lot of different passages. And even, even today's passage, we're going to see that there's um, a lot of things going on, a lot of different ways that people can read it and interpret it um, differently. So I kind of want to give a little mini lesson. This isn't the main point, but I just want to give a little mini lesson on how do we understand the Bible? How do we read the Bible, right? I've been going through this uh, series with some of the young adults, and it's been pretty fun. And we use a whiteboard, so that's why I brought a whiteboard. Um, so before we, we do that, let's see, how do we, before we even like think about how to read the Bible, let's think about how do we interpret in general? How do we interpret, right? So I'm going to give an example. Um, so... I remember recently talking to Ashley and Daniel <laughs> about this. So I'm going to use you guys. Sorry, Daniel and Ashley. Um, so let's say Ashley has something in her mind. Let's say here. Okay. Is this visible enough? Okay. Ashley has an idea. She wants, she wants flowers. <laughs> okay. She wants flowers. So... And she wants flowers from Daniel. And maybe she wants flowers without actually asking for flowers, right? Okay. Do you, do you kind of see the, a little bit of a dilemma here, right? But 
you know, when you actually ask for flowers and you get flowers, it's not as nice when you get flowers without asking, but she wants this. So she says a message to Daniel. And so Daniel, he receives that message. Sorry, not equally. Um, and so the goal of this communication, the goal of interpretation in this instance is that hopefully this equals the same thought as Daniel, right? Okay, not the same. Okay, essentially, right? Is this, yes, this makes sense, right? This is the goal of interpretation. We want Ashley's idea to be the same as Daniel Gillum's idea, right? And so how does she do that? Well, she sends a message. She says, um, oh, those flowers over there look really nice, <laughs> okay? This, this, is, this is probably a pretty good, those flowers over there look pretty nice, right? And so Daniel takes this and he hears it and he may think that, or he might be thinking, um, oh, we're painting the walls today and the flowers do look nice and there's that wall there that makes it extend. Like, oh, we should paint the, our walls <laughs> this color. And so Ashley might come home the next day from work expecting flowers because she, she said the message pretty clearly. <laughs> and then she gets, you know, her walls painted a totally different color. You know, who knows? I'm, I'm just saying, but, but ultimately the goal is what? We want to get the sender's intended meaning, okay? Did you want to get the sender's intended meaning when it comes to interpretation? We want the sender's intended meaning, okay? And frankly, that's funny that this is how we operate when it comes to communication with each other. It's how we operate when it comes to, you know, a lot of things, when it comes to reading, when it comes to um, watching YouTube videos. We want to get what the creator, the content creator or whatever, is his main idea and what, or her main idea that she's sending when it comes to communicating. But it's funny that oftentimes when it comes to the Bible, we actually take a more receiver-centric, a receiver's intended meaning when it comes to coming to the Bible, okay? And when it comes to like, um, I'll, I'll, give a, I'll give a funny example that, that happened. Um, I was having this, I was taught, we were talking, me and, me and Sanyo, the youth pastor, were talking to some of the parents, and one of the parents was saying, we need to get more people to be serving in our youth group. We need to get more people serving in our youth group. Why do we need to get more people serving in the youth group? Well, remember the parable of the sowers? There's four different soils. You know, three of them were bad, and one of them was good. That means we need to have one-fourth of the people serving in youth group. Okay, this is what she said, and I was like, okay, and so she was taking her idea, she was taking what she was thinking, she was thinking we need more people to serve in the church, and so when we're taking, we need more people to serve in the church, so she's going to take God's message and serve her purpose, to serve her purpose, right, she's trying to inspire people, and she's going to use the message of God to kind of point to that, right, and um, you know, there are, there, are, there are some kind of harmless ways to, to kind of take a reader-centric approach to the Bible, right? Um, I, I think of another friend who, um, sorry, I'm going to share a lot of like random stories and tidbits that I think are kind of funny. Um, I have another friend of mine, so she is an accountant, and I was like, dur during some Bible study, 
during one of the Bible studies, and, she, and they were talking about Matthew, the tax collector, was being called by Jesus to follow him. And so she was like, well, Matthew's a tax collector. He works with money. I work with money. Jesus must be calling me to follow him, okay? And she was thinking of this. And, and certainly, Jesus is calling my friend to follow her, to be a disciple. But at the same time, when, when the author, when Jesus is talking about Matthew, the tax collector, the, the, the way that we think of accountants and the way that they thought of tax collectors back then were very different, right? And so there are certainly other places in the Bible that are, you know, talking about people to follow, accountants to follow even, um, Jesus, but maybe not in that particular passage. There's also harmless ways that we could take a reader-centric approach, right? But ultimately, um, I don't think I need to tell you that there are certainly many times and people, even within the past hundred years, who have taken the message of God and kind of perverted it and took it to serve their purpose and even to take them to serve their purpose of, you know, destructive ways where people, you know, even lost their lives for that matter, right? So, um, sender's intended meaning. That's what we're going for, all right? Um, but that's a little more complicated than it just sounds that we're trying to get the sender's intended meaning. Why? Because we believe that God, God is speaking to us, to us, okay? God is speaking to us. He's sending his message to us, all right? And so we want to understand what God is saying. How does he do it? Well, we, we talked about it the three ways, right? Prayer, through other people, and through the Bible. But what's funny, it's what's interesting about it is he kind of takes us and talks to us through the Bible through, is God, is God speaking directly to us in the Bible? Yes or no? Or I don't know. Just tell me. <laughs> he, he kind of isn't, right? He's actually using a very human author, let's say in today's example, he's using Samuel. Sorry, is this readable, seeable? I think it is. He's using Samuel to speak to who? Is Samuel speaking to me? Is Samuel speaking to Peter? He's, he doesn't even know who Peter, Peter is probably. Sorry, Peter. You're a great guy, but Samuel's old. He's like 3,000 something years old, he's speaking to Israel. Okay? He's writing a book and he's speaking to Israel. So even if we were trying to like go and try to, you know, ascertain what God is trying to say to us, oftentimes we take the Bible and we read the Bible and be like, oh, we just jump straight to what is God saying to me? And we don't take into account what is Samuel saying to Israel. And so when we read and interpret the Bible when, when you know, I'm, I'm trying to give a sermon, when I'm trying to, to, to speak to, you know, the youth or teach the youth, or when Dan is, you know, sermon, he's, he's going to be thinking, reading the Bible, he should be, he, he would be thinking, like, what is the author saying to his audience? And through understanding what the author is saying, then I can understand what God is saying to, to me, to you guys. Okay, this is, makes sense, yes? This means yes, this means no. Okay, this makes sense, right? And, it's, and I think it's kind of funny because with the Bible, it seems like we always just kind of 
maybe not we don't always but it's really easy to jump straight to like okay what does this mean for me right i go open the bible i'm like hmm i really need to figure out what college i need to go to right i really figure out what college i'm going to like god please tell me what college to go to and just open the bible and just like and see like oh it's, maybe he's telling me to go here or there right or um a funny example that one of my one of the pastors i i talk with talks about is um Maybe there's like a struggling marriage and the wife is thinking, oh, should I, what should I do with my marriage, right? What should I do with my marriage? And she might open the Bible. It says, put on the new man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so she's immediately like taking like, oh, God must be saying this to me without taking into any consideration about what Paul <laughs> is saying to the church in Ephesus, right? For example, Okay. And so we need to do this. This is what we should be doing. We should be taking the Bible and reading it what the author is trying to say to his audience. Okay? And the main way we do that, one of the biggest ways we do that is through context. Through context. Through context, we get the meaning of... Through the context of words around words, we get the meaning of words... Through the context of sentences around sentences, we get the meaning of sentences. Through the context of paragraphs, we get the meaning of paragraphs. Of, I mean, of other paragraphs, meaning of paragraphs. And through the, actually, in, in, through the context of the various chapters around chapters, we get the meaning and the purpose of why Samuel is telling this chapter. Okay? And so we're gonna, what I'm going to do for the rest of this time is we're going to be looking at... What time is it? We're going to be looking at a very famous and popular story. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, before we, we're going to do a lot of the, the quote unquote wrong things. And we're going to, I'm just going to ask and we're going to see and kind of work through this whole process of understanding what Samuel is telling to Israel. Okay. Throw it slowly. We're going to kind of work together and work through this passage together. Okay. And eventually we're going to see kind of spoiler alert, what Dan was try, trying to share about, about through, the, through the songs, okay? All right, so I'm going to ask, uh, you, you guys know the story of David and Goliath? Yes? Okay, probably one of the most famous stories other than outside of, of Jesus. Um, what are some of the things that you guys remember or can think about when it comes to the story of David and Goliath? What are some of the major themes? Story of David and Goliath. Underdog. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Under Classic underdog story. It's March Madness right now, or it's going to be March Madness right now. And so we're, you're going to hear, if you watch March Madness, you're probably here if any kind of lower seed beats a higher seed. It's like, oh, the true David and Goliath story. I remember um, when Stephen Curry was on, uh, was playing in the March Madness tournament. He, was, he played for the, the team, uh, for the college of Davidson, right? And so you could probably, I don't know, I would imagine there's at least one beat writer that are like a true Davidson and Goliath story or something like that, right? Um, I, 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 there has to have been, right? <laughs> okay, so anyway, underdog story. Good. What, what are some other what are some other lessons? Or some other things we think about when it comes to David and Goliath story. I think a very popular one 
um, and probably a pretty common one, and you would learn this in Sunday school. Actually, if I, I was you, I, I just quickly YouTube searched like some sermons on David and Goliath, and I guarantee almost pretty much almost all of them said had something to do with um, you can defeat your giants, right? You can defeat your giants, right? That if you if you have faith, then you will defeat the Goliaths in your life. All right, two themes that are I think are pretty common. Is that is that fair? Is that fair? Maybe there's a few other ones um, that I aren't mentioning, but those are two major themes that I think of. Right? Okay. And so what we're gonna do today is I'm gonna just read the whole story. It's very 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 long. It's like fifty something verses. I'm just gonna read the whole story. I'm just gonna think about those two premises, those two themes. And let's think about, do those themes, are those themes compatible or incompatible, right? Or are those themes compatible? Or is there maybe a little bit more nuance to some of those themes? Okay? A little more, more detail, a little more depth. All right. But I'm just going to read. Before I do that, I need some water. It's very long. All right. So if you have your Bibles, follow along. If you're online, it's on the PowerPoint. Um, we're going to be reading from 1 Samuel 17, chapter 17. Okay. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesus-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was a son of Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. 
See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went. As Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest, eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom ha have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed them with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. He tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, 
that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistine as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaaraim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. All right. Pretty epic story, right? I feel like a lot of like the imagery and like just like the whole like movie scene playing before my head kind of just plays out all at once, <laughs> right? As, as we're reading this, it's pretty cool. Um, and there's a lot of details that like when I was reading it and hopefully when you guys are reading it, like, man, I didn't recognize that. One of the, one of the ones that most people recognize, like, oh, I didn't know David was super handsome. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, how does it hold up? How does it hold up? David, underdog story. Is he an underdog? How do we feel about that? There's certainly a contrast, right, between Goliath and David, right? In the beginning, we kind of have this whole scene of like this kind of slow pan cinematic scene of how it just kind of slowly like zooms in on his shoulder pads and then on his breastplate and then on his giant shield and his giant sword and his bronze helmet. And we see how tall he is compared to the rest of the land and the rest of the people, right? We kind of, you kind of see that, right? You kind of have this huge... So there's a little bit of that, right? There's a little bit of this underdog kind of David. He's young. He's handsome. He's not a war hero. But what does he have? What does the author say that he has? He has the God of the living on his side, right? And who's the Philistine? This uncircumcised Philistine? He doesn't. He doesn't. And so... Um, I don't know if there's like this really this true underdog story going on here, right? It's almost a comparison of like human weapons versus the weapon that David holds, right? Even though it says he holds a sling and there is a human weaponness element of it, his credit and what he says is, see, I've got, you might have a sword, you might have a spear, you might have a javelin, you might have all this armor, but I come with my weapon. And he doesn't say it's a sling, it's a... It's God, right? It's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the living. And that's what he says. And so almost it's like this comparison, 
of these two things, okay? Um, another example that I heard, I, I recently listened to, you guys know who Malcolm Gladwell is? It's like a author, famous author and podcaster. He kind of loves doing this kind of thing where it's like, oh, you think this story is about this, but I'm going to explain to you and show you that the story is about that, right? He does this with like the Little Mermaid on his podcast. Um, and he did this with the story of David, right? David, the David and Goliath story isn't a story, an underdog story, right? And he kind of goes through kind of, some, he doesn't go through the text, but he goes through some of the common understandings of the story of David and Goliath. What's funny though is he kind of gets it all mixed up still. Yes, he's correct that it's not an underdog story, but then he starts going about like how ancient warfare wasn't actually won by swords and swords and shields. It was actually won by like archers and slingers and artillery and ranged warfare and how like it was a battle of subversion of expectation and like Goliath was expecting like a sword fight, but David comes and he's really smart and he comes with a, with a sling instead, right? And so he kind of takes the story and like makes it into like a, a story about like self-empowerment. Just, just be smart and you'll win the battles. <laughs> kind of like what he kind of does, right? But clearly, what, what is the author saying? If we're thinking about what Samuel is saying to Israel, at least in the story, just from reading, and I know we're not doing the full due diligence of what we're doing. We're going to do a little bit more of that um, when we read more of the stories surrounding the story. But at least what is kind of driving here? David has God, right? David has God. And he says, God, you come at me with sword and spear. And it says what? What does it say? For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Right? Remember that phrase. We're going to remember that phrase. For the battle is the Lord's. Okay? Um, what was the second one we thought of? The second one was... Uh, God will defeat your giants, right? With, with faith in God, God will defeat your giants, right? God certainly helps David defeat his giants, right? So there's still a little bit of that element still there, okay? And it kind of gives a little more detail, right? We can see that God helps him with faith and that there's a comparison of how God operates versus, you know, swords and spears and javelins. Um, okay, we're going to continue to move on. We're going to read, we're going to go back now. And we're going to read some of the context to see what Samuel is trying to get at. Okay, we're going to go back to 1 Samuel. And we're actually going to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Chapter 8. Okay. And I'm just going to, just going to read it for you guys once again. And we're going to, once again, we're going to think about, okay. Underdog story. A little, debunk that a little bit. Um, God, with faith, God will defeat your, help you defeat your giants, right? Second one. Let's think about that. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me over being king over them. According to all the deeds that I have done, 
that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Quick question. Did, did Israel have a king before Saul? Actually, they did. <laughs> who was their king? It was God. God was their king the whole time. Okay? But they don't see that. They can't really see God. I mean, they can, right? They, they, he sent this pillar of smoke. He sent the burning bush. He sent all these things. There's ways they could have saw him, but he wasn't, you know, this human person. Anyway, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. Right, so once again, Israel, they really want a king. They want to be just like the other nations who have their kings, who fights and judges over them, who fights the battles for them so they be secure, right? And you know, when I was reading this, it's kind of, I think it's kind of ironic because um, even today when we think of God and Christianity in general, and especially like those who don't go to the church and when they think about god they think of like some kind of like tyrant right he wants us to live a certain way he wants us to do certain things and he's like okay he's like kind of almost command of your life and what's kind of what i find kind of funny here is in in samuel's description of what the people want they're exactly getting <laughs> what they what what a lot of today's people don't want from from having believing in a god Right? But they're going to get that in what exactly what they want. They're going to get that in. They really want a king to rule over them. Right? They really want to see something. They really want to see some kind of authority in their life that can give them safety, security, protection, you know, and, and, and land and governance. Right? Has Israel done this before? <laughs> right? Who remembers the story of the golden calf? The golden calf, right? Moses was up on the mountain, and he was. T this is after Moses and and God led them out of Egypt, part of the Red Sea, and they're on Mount Sinai. And Moses is talking with God, and he's talking with God for a long time, a couple days, actually several days, up in the mountain. And the Israelites are sitting there on the bottom of the mountain, and they're just waiting. And they're like, "Hmm, 
I can't see God. Moses isn't even here. Um, how are we going to live? How are we going to figure out how to be a nation? How are we going to figure out how to get to God's promised land? You know what we need? We need a God we can see. And so what did they do? They were like, hey, Aaron, um, the other, the priest guy, uh, make us a God. And so they give him all the gold and they, they, they fasten it and like, oh, and they start bowing, they start worshiping and they start giving credit for being saved from Egypt and being saved and being crossing the Red Sea and everything to this golden calf. Why? Because they could see it. It's something they can attribute their lives to, right? Because they can see it. And this is the same thing. It's almost like the same thing where like people just want to have someone, something that they could see, okay? And it's funny because they especially, what do they say they want the king to do? They want him to judge them. And what does it say? What does it say the king's job is, according to the people? And go out before us and fight our battles. Huh. Go out before us and fight our battles. Who's the king in the story of David and life at that time? Saul is the king. Saul's the king. What does Saul do? Is Saul going out there and fighting the battles? No. Saul is not fighting the battles. Who's fighting the battle? David's fighting the battle. That's right. David's fighting the battle. You think this is an important detail that wouldn't go missed if you were reading the story? It's a pretty important detail, especially when David says, the Lord fights our battles, right? Okay. Important detail. Some of the context. Okay. We're going to move on. We're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Okay. Sorry, I know there's a lot of reading and... Is it time? How much time? Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> a lot of reading. But I think it's helpful, right? I think the story is actually pretty cool. It's pretty cool, awesomely written. All right. 1 Samuel 16. We're going to skip ahead to verse 6. We're going to skip the first five verses. When they came and he looked... On, this is Samuel looking for a new person to anoint. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse said to Shammah, made Jesse Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has no, not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for, he will, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then David took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit of God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, 
who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David and his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he, came, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. One of the first things when I was reading this that came to mind was remember at the end of the story of David and Goliath, right? At the end of it, Saul was like, who is this guy that fought, right? Whose son is he? He's like, oh, it's Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Like, go get him. I don't know, I don't know who he is, but go get him. The Saul, should Saul, sorry, should I say, should Saul know who he is? This guy is here playing the lyre for him. Every single time he feels, you know, like the spirit, this, this harmful spirit is attacking him. Not only that, he becomes his armor bearer and he is found favor in the sight of Saul. This is so bizarre, right? This is so weird. And this is just the previous chapter. Isn't this so weird? Something is clearly wrong with Saul, right? Something is clearly wrong with Saul. How does he not know his armor, his own armor bearer, his own personal musician just went out and killed Goliath. How does he not know who he is, right? And it's not like he was like, oh, that's some, like, some guy in the far off distance. He helped him put on the armor. He was like the, his own armor bearer. He took the armor and tried to put it on him, right? He should know who David is. This is so weird. Something is clearly wrong with Saul. All right. And then Samuel. Samuel, when he's looking for a new, a new person to anoint as the future king. What does he say? What is that line that he says? Where is it? It's in verse... Verse 7, right? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Once again... What do we see Israel doing? They want to see the king. They want to see a king that will do all the good things for them, right? And actually, if we, we, we didn't read all the context, but if you read Saul, Saul is, it says that he is the, there is no one more handsome than Saul in all of Israel. And he's a head taller than everyone else. He looks the part. He is taller and more physically gifted than everyone else in all of Israel. And he looks good. And he's super handsome, right? It'd be super great to have a super handsome, well-built man doing, fighting your battles. <laughs> Seems like what it's saying. And so that's what they, they want. He, he looks every bit of the part of what a king, what a person that would fight the battles for them should look like, right? Saul looks every bit the part. But what's clearly going on with Saul is he's not fit. He's not right, right? He's not right. 
For God looks at not the outward appearance, but what? But the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. And what does David's heart look like? And what does Saul's heart look like? Right? And if you, if, you, if, you, if you read the full context, if you're reading all the other chapters in between chapter 8 and chapter 16, we see that Saul kind of fumbles about. In the beginning, he, he has favor and he's anointed and he does all these things. But when he starts having these success and these, and these things, he starts thinking like, oh, I think I know what God wants. You know? And he starts doing things where God wants him to, um, when he wins the war, he wants them, him to destroy everything. But it's like, oh, I don't think God wants us to destroy everything. I'm going to take the finest things and God probably wants the finest things and will sacrifice it for him. And he gets scolded for it, right? Because God wants obedience and not sacrifice. Right? God wants a relationship. He wants someone that will listen to him and not presume, once again, not presume and think like, oh, this is what I think God wants, right? And so we kind of have this kind of broken relationship that Samuel has with God. Not Samuel, sorry. That Saul has with God. And so when we fast forward to the story of David and Goliath and we think about the stories and it's, like, it's just like one scene amongst like this whole movie that Samuel is trying to play before us when it comes to what he's, he's showing us, right? And it's one scene. And in the scene, the the main characters. Who are the main characters in the story of David and Goliath? Well, it would seem like the story, the main characters are David and Goliath, right? But who are really the main characters? Who's Samuel trying to point us to? Who's he trying to point us to? It's David and Saul, right? It's David and Saul. Who's the one that goes in and fights the battle? It's David, not Saul. And so what he's telling Israel is he's pointing out Something that Israel has been going all along. They keep choosing different kings. They keep choosing different gods and what they think is right. And God has chosen something much greater, much better for them. He's chosen David to fight the battles for them. Right? He's choosing David to fight the battles for them. And so when I, when I think about the story and what Samuel is trying to get, and I think even what God is trying to say to us. Sorry. <laughs> And what he's trying to say to us and what he's saying to me isn't that I should is it that I should be like David and have this incredible faith? Certainly there's some element of there and that's having faith is definitely a part and definitely in the Bible, right? But almost what I'm thinking is like we're supposed to be Israel, right? It's almost asking us, are we going to choose Saul as our king or are we going to choose David as a king? Who's the right king that we should be serving? Is it David or is it Saul? And that's what I think Samuel is saying to Israel. And so for us, 3,000 years later, what is God saying to us today? I'm going to do one more context. It's really quick. Sorry. We're going to fast forward to 2 Samuel. And we're going to see that David actually represents something very different. David... Not, not very different. David represents something, right? And we're going to read from verse, what verse was it? <laughs> 12, thank you. I have my notes somewhere. Verse 12. When your days, this is God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all these, this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And so this is the fourth covenant that God explicitly makes in the Bible. And he makes it with David. And he says, David, you're going to have an offspring. And his kingdom, as, as much as, we, as your kingdom will be great, it will someday perish. And you will die, and your fathers will die, and your sons will die. But one day you will have a son, and his kingdom is going to reign forever. This is God's promise to David. And so when we look at the Gospels, and we see the lineage, especially in chapter 1 of Matthew, we see that who is that son? It's Jesus. And so while David was the one that fought on behalf of Israel, and he fought Goliath, and he fought the giant, who's the one that fights our battles? Who's the one that fights against the giant of sin in our life? It's Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the chosen one, the new anointed one who has come to fight the battles for us. And so what I think the story and what, what this is pointing at is asking us, would you, how would you respond if you're Israel in this case? Would you want to serve Saul or would you want to serve David, the one that fights your battles? And in this case, who is our king? Right? Are we going to choose other kings, other ways of life, other things that we feel like would give us security and give us prosperity? Or are we going to heed the words of Samuel and say, like, these things, all these things that you think will give you prosperity are actually going to take away from you? Or would we let God, would we let Jesus fight our battles? And ultimately, not only did he fight our battles, but we know that he has won the battle, right? That when Jesus, was on the, when Jesus died on the cross, he did not just die to death, but he rose again, showing us that death no longer has control. Death no longer has its sting on our lives if we put our faith in him. And so that's what I think this story is calling us to do, right? And I think if you go through the whole Bible and you read a lot of the Old Testament stories, a lot of the time you're thinking like, oh, this is a weird story. Why does it have to do with my life now? And if we're reading in context, if we read what the author is trying to say to the people, and what you'll see all over the Bible, you see this all over the Old Testament, and I know Dan believed this, I know Daniel Gillum believes this, and I believe this, that all of the Old Testament, right, all, if you read it all in context, you're going to see that Jesus is the right king. Jesus is king. It's all pointing, all the Old Testament is pointing forward to this future king that we can look back now on. Right? And that's what the Old, Old Testament is about. And what you know, a lot of the Old Testament is really doing is calling us and saying, hey, look at this Messiah, the one who gives life, the one who fights our battles, and not only fights our battles, but is victorious in those battles. Right, 
And so when Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom is here, the battle is won, and you can experience that right now if you would just let me fight the battles instead of constantly fighting your own. Okay? I just wanted to share with, with you, and I hope this helps when it, comes to, um, when it comes to reading the Bible, when it comes to thinking about how do we hear from God, and even in, in the stories when we think about how, how do we choose what we do and choose how to live our lives. Would you let God fight the battle? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for the story. Thank you for this epic story, full of description and, and, and vividness, God. And I just thank you that, you know, you share all these stories, not to just stir our imaginations, God, though it does, not to just kind of bring out... Um, you know, some good moral lesson about what we should do in our lives. But God, that you really want to show us that you love us. God, that you really want to show us your power. God, that you really want to show us your son on the cross who died on our behalf, who fought the, the battle against sin and death. God, I pray that as we continue in worship, as we continue fellowshiping, God, can we, I pray that we would encourage one another, encourage each other, to have faith, God, and to choose you as king in our lives. God, I want to pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.